welcome to the Edinburgh International Culture Summit podcasts. Culture Summit 2014, Benjamin R. Barber, Senior Research Scholar at the Centre on Philanthropy and Civil Society at the City University of New York. Good morning. Is everybody awake? Good, because I'm not, but uh, <laughs> I will try in the course of the next few minutes uh, to, to be awake as we introduce our second day, uh, Presiding Officer Jonathan and ministers from many different places. Uh, I'm very pleased and honored to be able to talk with you to continue the conversation that we started yesterday about the city and culture, the city and arts. And I'll just try to put a few fairly blunt and provocative ideas on the table. I am an American, so it will be acceptable to you that I do so, I think, since we're known uh, for our bluntness. And I do want to be blunt because we're at a crucial time in the world. Just look at the morning headlines in any paper around the world, and we know that things are not well. The state, not just of the Union, but the state of the world, is in desperate condition and needs ideas, needs innovation, needs particularly the solace the consolation and the contributions that art and culture can make that are so often marginalized, siloed, and put aside. And so I want to say a few words this morning about the arts and about culture and their specific and unique relationship to the city, to the urban, to urbanity, and suggest that in that tight relationship between the city and culture, the city as culture, lays the possibility of what I would be so bold as to call a governance revolution in how we address and talk about the desperate problems that we face today. Let me start with a quote from Javier Nito, the president of the Institute for Advanced Architecture in Catalonia, who says, more than ever before, the city will be culture a space of freedom and contact, a space for creation and exchange, a quality public space at the human scale with efficient energy sustainable systems of mobility where people are the essential core in what today defines the values of the city. So he makes a point which I think is essential, which is that when we think about and talk about the city, We don't think about the city and culture, but we think about the city, or ought to, the city as culture. That there's a sense in which those two terms are synonymous. That we are talking about the very same thing, that we can't talk about culture without talking about the urban, and we can't talk about urbanity without talking about the arts and about culture. Let me just say, before I move on to talk specifically about the city, a few more words about what mediates that vital relationship between the city and culture because there are three key terms I want to put on the table that I hope we can talk about in the course of the day in addition to the other rich provocations that have already been presented. I want to talk about uh, the ideas of first the public and how that understanding of the public can mediate art and urbanity. I want to talk about the idea of democracy and the way in which culture and the city 
are both born around and inspire and generate the idea of democracy. And finally, I want to talk about a term that I prefer to the one that's been used over the last day or so, that term globalization, which has certain negative connotations. I want to talk about interdependence and the way in which a world, 21st century world, defined by interdependence, mediates the relationship between art and the city, culture in the city, in important ways. And let me just say a word about each of those and then go on to talk uh, specifically about the role that the city can, can play. The idea of the public, of public space, of what constitutes a public, is absolutely essential both to culture and to the city and under siege today not so much from the specific ideologies of neoliberal market philosophy and the idea that private is better than public, the idea that the state or government is the problem and the market is the solution, as more a result of privatization, commercialization, the demeaning, the belittling of the very idea of the public, the idea of us. Yet the city is us. It's about a common community. It's about collectivity and individualism, powerful as it is, the market and market capitalism, productive as they are, fall short of grasping our essential communal relationship. Edward Glazer said we're an urban species, a kind of update on Aristotle's, we're a political animal, a zoon political, politicon, that we have in common our commonality, that we work together collectively, cooperatively, and that we are larger as we are together, smaller as we are apart, much as we celebrate our individualism, our private liberty, and the possibilities of the market. So the idea of the public gives birth in the political realm to the idea of citizenship, the key vase, the person who is like other people because they share a common space. There's been a lot of discussion about identity politics and what separates us. But the word citizenship, citoyen, citoyenneté, cité and citoyen have the same etymology, points to what we share in common. As citizens, we occupy a common space as blacks and whites, Muslims and Christians, ethnics of one kind or another, speakers of different languages. We are distinct, but as citizens, we put that aside to share common ground, public purposes. And citizenship grows directly out of that idea of the public. Citizenship doesn't always extend to everybody. One of the large questions today is who is and who is not a citizen, but the aspiration to citizenship is an aspiration to commonality. And the struggle in my country, in the United States, for example, has been a two or three hundred year old struggle to expand citizenship, to encompass not just white male property owners, but everyone. And today the question is those who are in the country not officially as citizens, what is their role in citizenship? But citizenship is an aspirational public that points to what we share and not to what divides us. It has in common in culture with the idea of an audience. Early Greek theater began with one actor and an audience, a religious preacher and a congregation. And everyone, I think, knows that one of the great strengths of art is that it's not about artists working in solitude, but it's about art and audience. 
Spectacle is the French word, and spectator. The presence of an audience. An audience is a kind of cultural citizenry, if you like. And the audience is involved in the making of art, not just the consuming of art. And no play, no dance, not even a poem is complete until it has an audience, until an audience participates in taking it in and understanding it and giving it back. So the idea of the public is the first. The second is the idea of democracy. Back when I worked with Bill Clinton in the 1990s, he asked me to write an essay for his National Commission on the Arts. And I wrote a piece on imagination. And I said this, and I'll say it very, very simply, that democracy and art share one fundamental faculty, and that is empathy, imagination. There is no art without imagination, and there is no democracy without imagination. Bigotry, prejudice, are nothing other than the absence of imagination. The inability to look across to another person and look beyond their skin color, or their religion, or their ethnicity. Bigots are women and men without imagination. And we live in a world of defective imagination today in so many parts of the world where people can't imagine beyond Islam, beyond Christianity, beyond their ethnicity, beyond their gender. They can't imagine that the other across the aisle is also human. And empathy and imagination make that possible. That's why, for me, the most important feature of education in a democracy is arts education because it's in the arts that we learn and understand the faculty of imagination and what it does to allow us to see and be with others and to understand and be with others is what allows us to create a public, to create common space, to create a citizenry. And it's only the lack of imagination that makes us feel the citizenry is not large enough to encompass people with dark skins or people with a different religion. So imagination plays such a powerful role. And as you wander around Edinburgh looking at the extraordinary artistic events, think for a minute at what is, which faculty is being most appealed to. And it is your imagination. As you wander around, and there are people from all over the world here, and arts events and performances from all over the world, they kindle our imagination. They allow us to identify with others, to see others, to understand the other. And in this world today, the problem of the other, which is not their problem, but our problem, the inability to see the other as part of our community, lays at the heart of so many of the difficulties that we face. And the arts and culture provide such a direct way into imagination as important for art as it is for democracy. And then the third of these three features, interdependence. And here we come to the heart of a fundamental change in the world. For four or five hundred years, the world was defined by territorial, sovereign nation-states, independent nation-states in which we lived out our lives and in which the problems and challenges we faced were all given by the territorial entities. When I was growing up in New York City in the 1940s, my mother used to say, don't go to Brooklyn, there's a virus over there. You might get ill. Nowadays, we worry about the West Nile virus, the Hong Kong flu, Ebola, 
coming across borders, HIV, HIV, global pandemics. It's not just médecins sans frontières, it's maladies sans frontières, disease without borders. We live in a world of disease without borders, immigration without borders, markets without borders, technology without borders, crime without borders, terrorism without borders. And yet, it's a still a world of bordered, independent, 18th century sovereign states. And in that dilemma is the very heart of the political problem of the modern world. 18th century independent sovereign institutions confronting 21st century interdependent problems that cross all borders. And yet we do not have civic or political institutions that really cross borders. We have those that try, like the United Nations system and the Bretton Woods institutions. But because they are rooted in the sovereign state system, they are also, like the Security Council, limited by the sovereign state system. So interdependence is a mandate for cooperation and exchange at the heart of the making of art and at the heart of the making of a just politics. So in those three ideas, interdependence, democracy, and the idea of the public, art and urbanity, come together and put the city in a special place today. And I don't have to remind you of how special cities are. A couple of months ago, I was in Brussels at a European Council meeting where one of the, uh, one of the officials said, yes, the city is a very interesting level of governance. And I said, no, it's not. It's not a level of governance at all. The city is the quintessential and original human community. It is how we define ourselves. We often talk in patriotism and nationalism about the countries we come from. But when I ask people where you're from, when I asked Ms. Mandela where she was from, she said, oh, Durban. She didn't say South Africa. She could have, but she said Durban. And you ask me and I'll say New York. And somebody else will say Edinburgh because the towns and cities from which we come where we're born, where we grow up, go to school, take jobs, get married, where we pray and play and get old and die. They are truly our identity. It is at that level that we think about who we are, what we share, and what our communities are. And that, I believe, is an extraordinary civic advantage. It's also where art happens. It's where culture happens. As I say, culture is the city. And what happens at that level is that we feel the possibility of solving the everyday problems that are supposed to comprise the political agenda. If I look around the world today, I see a series of nation states busy posturing, talking ideology, explaining how different they are from one another, fighting about their borders and territories, and often trying to destroy one another. So often 21st century politics looks like 19th century politics. Wars of national liberation and independence. Countries still trying to win their independence in an interdependent world. These remarks have no reference to Scotland, by the way. But I do think, but I do think that we are living in a world where the ancient and understandable impulse for independence is fundamentally contradictory to the basic need in the 21st century for interdependence, 
for more togetherness, more integration, more cooperation. And that whether it's in the Ukraine or Catalonia, whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq, whether it's here in the United Kingdom, trying to separate and divide and retrieve ancient identities organized around nationalism is whatever else it may be about is contrary to the spirit of an age that demands, if we are to survive at all, demands increased cooperation, demands a loosening of borders, not a tightening of borders, demands less sovereignty and more collaboration. And that is simply a mandate of the realities of the 21st century. And it's one I want to suggest that cities are particularly well-suited as venues of culture and civility and multiculturalism and trust, particularly well-suited to undertake. If we spend a little less time talking about nation-states and sovereign states and independence and spend a little more time thinking about cities and mayors and interdependence, think about cities as these extraordinary civic communities of exchange that lie on the crossroads of the world. 90% of cities are on water of some kind, rivers, streams, lakes, oceans, seas. Of course, because they are a medium of exchange, of transactionalism of transformation. That's why cities are multicultural while nations are monocultural. It may be the English people, the Scottish people, the Welsh people, but in London and Birmingham, in Cardiff, in Edinburgh, the whole world is present. It has been for a long time because cities are about trade and exchange and about culture and cultural exchange. And that means that they are rooted in the idea of the acceptance and toleration and even the embracing of difference. And why when you go to a city, you can't any longer talk about one ethnicity, one people, one religion, but you're talking about all of them together. And that makes cities look much more like the world. Nations don't look like the world, they look like themselves. But cities actually look like the world of multiculture, of difference, of transactionalism, of transformation. And that makes them, I believe, ideal entities, not just for the practices of art, of culture, of trade, of business, of entrepreneurship, of ingenuity, of creativity, all those things that happen in the city. But it makes them instruments of civic cooperation. It makes them instruments that allow us to enlarge citizenship from being a citizen of New York or Tokyo or Durban or Perth, into a citizen of the planet. Because citizens of cities are, in a certain sense, already citizens of the planet. They come from all over. They share the differences. They create communities based not on their specific identities. They share a community that they create. Civility and the city represent a created community, created from imagination, created from common goals, created from public spaces that we make for ourselves. The Edinburgh Festival is glorious because it takes place in the great public spaces of Edinburgh, of which it has a great many. That's funny because we often think of the countryside as the open spaces and city as the closed spaces, but it's in cities that public space, the public square, the commons is found and is exploited for the purposes of culture. 
and exchange and education and growth and thus in time democracy as well. A commons welcomes everybody in a way that nations cannot and do not. So cities are a key to our future. And the question I will leave with you as I finish my remarks this morning is whether there is a way to enhance the already extraordinary role of cities in global cooperation. If I had time, I would name for you 12 or 15 inner city associations which most of you will never have heard of. Say the United Nations to a child of 12, they all know what it is. Most of them will snicker, a few will applaud. But say United Cities and Local Governments, say ICLE, say CityNet, say City Protocol, name the associations that already exist in which cities cooperate and work together. And most people will shake their heads. United Cities and Local Governments, around for more than 100 years, is the most important inner city association in the world nobody's ever heard of. Except perhaps a few people in this room, because they're present and they've done such extraordinary work. But I want to suggest that if we can build on intercity association, if we can work with the architecture of civic cooperation that comes out of the public common spaces created by urbanity and culture, we have a chance to create a different kind of global architecture. An architecture of cooperation, of openness, of multiculturalism, of creativity, of entrepreneurship, and of productivity. And as a result, Jonathan said yesterday when we were talking, he said, this conference has to be not just about talking, but about making something. Artists make things. That's their great power. They don't just think things and imagine things. They make things that we share. I want to suggest we make a new institution that can be part of a governance revolution. I want to suggest that we make a new global institution. We can call it a parliament of mayors, a parliament of cities, an assembly of cities, which does the many things that the UN, despite its brilliant intentions and its extraordinary leadership, has been unable to do because it's rooted in nation states. And that is create a global cooperative body capable of addressing climate change, immigration, disease, security, justice, education, equality the things we all aspire to at our best as citizens and so rarely achieve through the institutional devices of the nation state, but which cities are so well suited with their rooting in culture and the arts, in education and creativity to help us find a global parliament of mayors. And if you like that idea, go online at theinterdependencemovement.org or come to Amsterdam on September 19th. Excuse the plug, Jonathan, but I'll put it on. On September 19th, when the G4 Dutch mayors of Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Utrecht, and The Hague have invited mayors from around the world. There'll be 40 or 45 cities there and 50 or 60 urban experts and associations to look at a planning process to convene a global Parliament of Mayors pilot as the beginnings of a governance revolution in which we take the extraordinary strengths that are twinned in the city and art, in culture and urbanity, and turn it into a cooperative principle for sustainability, which our world desperately needs. Thank you very much.
For more information about the 2014 Edinburgh International Culture Summit, visit www.culturesummit.com. Mm-hmm.